Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Michelle Maldonado. Michelle is founder and CEO of Lucencia, a human potential and mindful business transformation firm dedicated to developing leaders and organizations with positive impact in the world. She's a graduate of Barnard College at Columbia University, the George Washington University Law School, and she's a certified mindfulness teacher professional level with the International Mindfulness Teachers Association. And she's also certified faculty member and a meta coach for Dan Goldman's Emotional Intelligence Coaching Certification Program. Which sounds true, She's on the faculty of our Inner MBA program, which is a nine-month immersion program to do inner work for greater impact. You can learn more at innermbaprogram.com. Michelle Maldonado is such an unusual person. Her heart full and brimming, dedicated to public service. It's clear in this conversation Compassion is her superpower. Take a listen. Here at the beginning, Michelle, I'd love to know a little bit more and for you to share with our listeners a bit about your background. I read that you actually were introduced to meditation the summer after first grade, and I wanted to hear about that and what led you to becoming the founder and CEO of Lucentia. Yeah, thank you for that question. Thanks for having me here. Um, so it's one of my most favorite stories of how meditation was introduced to me because it is one of those gifts that you don't recognize how powerful and uh, beautiful it is in the moment until you get to really embody it, integrate it over your life. and. And so I grew up in New England in a very traditional Roman Catholic family. Uh, and um, my grandmother had a sister who kind of traveled the world, never had children. She was everybody's favorite aunt. And she just, everybody got so excited to be in her presence. And one summer, she had my older sister and I come out and spend the summer with her in Casper, Wyoming, and she introduced us to the uh, some of the indigenous communities, Lakota Sioux and Cherokee nations, and we, we just we just learned so much. And she had this philosophy of not just uh, our town view or our country, but a world view, a human view. And she was just having these beautiful conversations with these budding minds. And one day, she just simply said, you know, a couple of days after arriving, she said. Would you like to come sit quietly with me? And I, I, I tell this story a lot. And, I, and the, the seven-year-old mind was like, no, I want to go to the pool. I want to go ride bikes. <laughs> I want to go play in the dirt. And then I stopped myself. I said, but wait, she is the favorite aunt. Maybe there's something to this. And so I did it. And she just was so gentle and quiet and even keeled I sat in the chair and she placed her hands on my head and said, quiet here. She stood behind me and then she moved her hands down to my chest and said, so you can be here. And that's all she said. That's all she ever said. She never told me it was meditation. She never used any language 
of anything. And, uh, and then simply said, you know, and when you're ready, you can get up, whether I'm done or not, you can go outside and play. And when I think back on what that did for me, and I wouldn't have had the language, you know, as a seven year old. But what I did know when I finished sitting quietly was that I felt better. The colors of the world seemed brighter. The noises were crisper. And I just felt better. I felt grounded. Things didn't bother me. I was happier. I was more joyful, which to me is actually a, a more intense, more elevated version of happy, right? It's just, and, um, and so I kept doing it after the summer, but I went back to a very strict traditional Roman Catholic family where, and my family is also Cape Verdean, so they're also cultural traditions that didn't really leave room for meditation. And, uh, and I found myself unfolding, blossoming in ways that were different from my siblings and cousins, that I would say things to, you know, my parents and my elders uh, in ways that I thought were respectful, <laughs> but they would be very perplexed. And I remember one time in particular, my grandmother being mad at me for something and yelling at me. And I took a breath and I said, Nana, I can see you're really upset right now. So am I. Why don't we just take a moment and come back and then talk about it? I was 12 years old. Wow. And it, it infuriated her. I mean, I thought I was doing something brilliant. <laughs> she did not like it. So I wasn't in a, an environment that was conducive to, to continuing it with other people. But what I did was I continued the practice on my own all the way through high school, all the way through college, all the way. And it wasn't until college that I learned that that's what it was. And then I started learning terminology, different styles and all those things. And I, so when I got in the workplace to just kind of wrap this up to say, how did it re relate to or lead to forming Lucentia? It's because when I got into the workplace, even when I got into law school, when I got into the, to these more professional places, what I discovered was there was so much suffering that everybody was trying to hide and pretend that they weren't experiencing. And I was the person that people would kind of come to their office and open the door and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And then they'd leave like an hour later. And after a while, I got to the point where I was staying up so late at night because I was getting the work done at night that I was supposed to be getting done during the day. And I started thinking, we have some organizations who are behaving badly in the world. Why is that? We have some systems that are oppressive and and um, full of, of disparate treatment across different populations. Why is that? And when you reverse engineer it and engineer that, it's because those organizations are filled with people like you and me. And we're carrying our life stories, our life traumas, our belief systems that have been ingrained in us. And we're, we're bringing it through the doors of the workplace. And we're doing that and intersecting with a whole bunch of people who are doing the same thing. And so I just decided that that was the part of the work that I did in my own practice and embody it, embodiment that infused the nature and quality of my presence, the impact of my ripple and also my performance. And so, for example, in my last job, my boss came to me one day and said, what is it that you do that makes your team so high performing? Because our team was outperforming uh, revenue producing millions of dollars, multiple millions of dollars more than the other teams. And they just couldn't figure it out. And so when I was first asked the question, I didn't know how to answer it. And then I, I realized it, and I said to him, it wasn't what, it was how. And I started to talk to him about how we do what we do matters and our presence matters. And that piece became really palpable at the forefront. And I started weaving all of that into leadership development, team development, organizational development work and found that people were ready. You know, initially they weren't, but ultimately, finally, you know, towards the latter part of the 2010s going into the 2015, you know, teens, people started to say what we've been doing isn't working and we need something better. And so I did it for several years until 2018, finally, just full time formed I formed the company in 2017, but decided, you know, this is the way I could serve in the world. We have so many people working in mission-driven organizations and nonprofits that do good work in the world, and they're bumping up against 
corporations and agencies every day who who want, who say they're mission driven, but their actions um, aren't aligned so that they're both doing good and being good. And that's where I wanted the company to kind of bring all those things together to meet people that are living the everyday, every day. Now, you mentioned in managing your team, what a high performing team it was. And it wasn't the what, but the how. Yeah. What was the how? <laughs> what was the how? <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I liken it to, to saying to a lot of people say, I just want you to get the work done. I hear this all the time. I don't want to be somebody's counselor. I don't want to have to hear all that. They know. I just want you to do the work. But when we approach people as human doings instead of human beings, we're not acknowledging the whole person that's in front of us. And so while people can perform functionally well, when they don't feel any connection, which then makes them not really feel the value of the relationship and the importance, the purpose behind the work that's deep and rooted, what you get is a lot of people who don't have uh, loyalty, who don't feel any particular affinity, and oftentimes don't stay. And so the how for me was recognizing and really being engaged in authentic conversation with members of my team about what is it, you know, I would ask questions every every time we would, you know, have our weekly meetings or do our uh, review periods. What What makes you excited about this work? Where do you see yourself going? And I would give them permission to say to me, that maybe where they wanted to go had nothing to do with this company. And if that were the case, then I'd say, okay, so in five years time, you want to be out in the world having your own business. What are the skill sets that you're going to need to be successful there that relate to what you're doing here? And let's make sure you get more of that. And so it was always uh, honoring who the people are and giving them autonomy too, and also letting them know that it was okay to make a mistake uh, not all mistakes, uh, you know, bring the end of the world <laughs> and some are really drastic and there are consequences, but people have to know if they make a mistake, it, it doesn't mean that they're a failure. It means we have to figure out how it happened, why it happened and how to, you know, fail fast and, you know, move forward really quickly. So I, I, I gave space and uh, permission first and foremost, and then lots of support and consistency. That question, what makes you excited about this work? That's definitely a terrific question. And one I wrote down that I'm going to need to ask the people I work with. I haven't been asking that question. And I did think of uh, one person and I thought if I asked that question, that person might say, you know, I'm not really excited about anything right now, truth be told. I'm not excited mm -hmm. about the work we're doing. I'm not excited about anything. Mm -hmm. And what, what would you do in a situation like that? Yeah, we have we have had that. Uh, I've had that happen. And and that's OK, too. That's that's the great thing. So if somebody feels comfortable and safe enough to say that to you, know that you're on the right track, because because some people will just make up an answer because they think they have to. But if you've established the the groundwork, right, you'll you'll get a real authentic answer. And so when that happens, I ask people, what do they love? What brings them? What what are they passionate about? And sometimes they'll say, well, I love to, I love art or I love, you know, music. And so maybe there are pieces of the work that we have that requires creativity, like creating uh, assets, creating materials for marketing. And so maybe it's, maybe it's not on your team. Maybe it's another place in the organization or another role or function, but you won't know if you don't have the, the, the conversation and start to say, okay, well, maybe, maybe what we're doing right now isn't fun for you, but is it that it's not fun for you because it's a necessary part of the job and we got to get this, like people hate doing expense reports and they hate doing, you know, these, these administrative things. But sometimes, you know, that's part of the job too. What about what parts, is there anything that you do like? And if not, then what are the things that you do like doing? And then figure out, oh, well, that's simple. Actually, that is part of this umbrella. Here's how we can make that more prominent. Um, and that may or may not mean that those other things that the person dislikes goes away because, you know, we're all adults, we're all working, and sometimes we have parts of our job we don't enjoy as much as others. But I always think the, the way to really sort of drill down and figure out how do you map what inspires and motivates the person to what they have to do, what the scope of what needs to be done, and sometimes uh, you can bridge the two. And sometimes you can't, and you got to be okay with that too. And if you can't, 
the next step I always ask is, is there something else in the organization? It's still continuing to have the question. It's like you peel back the finer layers of the onion. And if they say, if they don't say there's nothing really that's exciting me now uh, at work, uh, you can get into what does excite you? What are you passionate about? And see if you can map, because it may, sometimes people can't see the connection between what really fuels them and what they're doing. And when you can sort of make the connection for them, that shifts things a bit. And then um, if there truly is no connection, after you've learned what are the things that inspire them and motivate them and they're passionate about, if there's another role or function in the organization, sometimes that is the smarter play so you don't lose the person. Um, But the other thing I was saying, we have to caution, you know, people thinking, oh, I'll just have that conversation. We'll, we'll connect the dots. We'll be fine. Sometimes you're not. And sometimes there's not something inside the organization and you have to assist them to transition out. And sometimes you also have to just simply acknowledge that there are just parts of our jobs that we don't really enjoy, but that's not the totality of the job. You know, nobody likes, like when I was working, uh, even now, I don't like doing expense reports. That is not my favorite part of the job, but it is necessary to get done. <laughs> so we all have those pieces too. Now, I just want to underscore a couple of things before we move on with our conversation. First of all, what an unusual young person you were. I could imagine a lot of young people getting introduced with their favorite great aunt and being like, of course, I want to do it when I'm with her. But then forget it. I'm not going to keep sitting here focusing on my heart through my teenage years. No way. I got other things to do. Lots of other things. So I think that's really unusual. And then also this kind of just deep, intuitive care about Mm -hmm. people. I also think that's unusual. How do you understand yourself in terms of these two things I'm highlighting? I don't know any other way. I don't know any other way of being. I've always deeply cared about not just humans, but all things, you know, our creatures, big and small. uh, And, I I just, uh, one of the, I think that it probably has evolved over time because of my practice, but I, I, so I always remember feeling this way, but I believe that when you do your work, your inner work, and that the word work always, I, I don't have a better word for it. It's just, it's our journeys, right? Is becoming and being. You know, what we're being right now is exactly beautiful who we are. And at the same time that we are being, we are also becoming. And so I have just such profound love. I have love. (laughs) And um, a lot of people don't understand that. And, and, And because they don't understand that I can kind of be in this place of love for another. So sometimes when I, you know, I coach people and I prepare I open my heart. I want to be come from a place of love. And sometimes when you use the word love, people think of romantic love. They think of all these things are kind of wishy-washy. And, but I think love is an intelligent sort of way of being that allows us to connect with one another, that allows for wisdom to come through and to be present. It's a lens, I think, that helps to keep us grounded and connected and interconnected. And I'm still learning. And I'm sure if you ask me that question next week, next month, next year, I'm still learning and growing in who I am and my presence in the world. And I may answer it differently. I may have better clarity next time. But um, for now, I just I just feel this way. And I believe that it is uniquely what we all possess inside. And it also is uniquely what the world always needs. Beautiful. One more question about you personally, Michelle. You wrote an article called Finding Your Power at Work, at Home, and in Life. And in that article, you wrote, several years ago, a series of events in my life were triggered that led me on a journey to discover my own power. And I wanted to hear more about what that means to you, your own power, and also what those events were that triggered this journey to discover your own power. Yeah. Wow. 
So I wrote that article actually when my son, shortly after my son was born and, and didn't share it with the world until I think more than a decade later. And what I, my son is now 17. <laughs> and what I, what was happening at that time was, you know, I sort I grew up in a very sort of, you know, many people have different childhood experiences. We all have our own journey, but my childhood was really um, full of, of inconsistency. It was full. There was lots of abuse, neglect, trauma, addiction. There was a whole bunch of stuff that that I thought I had processed well, which is probably why I stuck with the contemplative practice because it always provided me a sense of safety and calming and grounding. When I had my son, the whole world, all kinds of things opened up again to me about how do I protect this human? How do I love this human in a way that promotes him, his well-being and happiness and joy? And I was working and I was, I was conflicted with uh, working while I had a, a young baby and I wanted to be with him. And I also had had knee surgery uh, shortly when he was still a toddler and uh, I developed a post-op infection and that was, it was just horrible. And then, um, and then I was at a job where I had been uh, for seven or eight years and I was, and it was a job that I got that everybody in the world would have wanted. It was back in the tech, it was just as the tech bubble burst and everybody's like, oh my gosh, you work for that tech company, can you get me a job there? And I was unfulfilled for so long, but I didn't know. So all these questions and all these sort of senses of feeling very vulnerable and not know where I was going next or what I was doing and, and wanting to um, gain some answers and clarity for myself. So I, the thing that I found that I was doing, which a lot of us do, is I was looking for so many answers outside of myself. Where's that training? Who's that guru? Uh, what's that device? <laughs> what's that, you know, whatever it was. And many, so, so what I was learning was when you claim your own power, that you, you understand that you have all the answers that you need, that nobody can tell you what's right or wrong for you, what's best or not for you, and that the people and supports and, and resources around us are meant for us to help discover our own answer, not to usurp it or replace it. And it, that was where I was in that moment that, that had me you know, write that article. That's a super, super powerful to know that you have everything you need and access to the support you need to make the decisions you need in your life to feel empowered. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Okay. One of the things you write and teach about is inner work for outer impact. And you've already referenced this idea that there can be a lot of mission-driven companies that exist for the right reasons, but are maybe not operating in all of the ways that are consonant with the mission they're trying to accomplish in the world. And really the launch of the Inner MBA, the program that I'm so happy that you're on the faculty of, it's really about this. It's wanting to say to all of those people out there who want their mission aligned company to do good work, do the inner work, so that you can have the kind of outer impact you really want to have really at every level in your organization. So what kind of inner work do you think creates the greatest outer impact? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting because a lot of people think I'm automatically going to say mindfulness and meditation. And what I will say is that, yes, that's an, a, a foundational element. But, but the way people's minds work is they're like, I need a framework. I need a process that I can follow. And so to make things easier for people, what I, was, what I often say is emotional intelligence, because the grounding inner sort of linchpin skill there is self-awareness. And that's where we bring in the mindfulness. And that is the most, that's the one that I always spend the most time on. Because if you're not developing that in your capacity there, you can't even get to the second, third, and fourth pieces and the second, third, and fourth pieces are really important because the self-awareness is what's happening in all of this inner world. Then the social awareness is how am I receiving, perceiving, and being received by others? That's the social awareness. And then 
How does that then, those two together, impact my relationships and interactions and how I lead? And so I, I, I use the framework, but there's this underpinning and threading of mindfulness and compassion, self-compassion. And the thing that people often have to understand is that, you know, the, the one of, they want to transform their organizations and there are lots of good people wanting to make, to do good in the world through their organizations and are having a hard time. And here's the thing we have to remember is that it took years, decades, some com- companies, centuries to become what they are today. And many of them, particularly if they're publicly traded companies, are dealing with external pressures like investors, you know, um, shareholders. And so that oftentimes can drive the decisions that are made because the people with the money power often have uh, an exaggerated sense of influence and control in the companies. So one of the things I think that people have to really be mindful of is that we have to appreciate that just like we have to meet people, individuals where they are, we also have to meet organizational systems where they're at so we can be, so we can practically um, meet them and put pieces and, and supports in place to help move us forward. Because a lot of times we're like, we're so excited, we wanna make this change. And we think it's, we put in this new training program. Why isn't things change? Why aren't things changing? We did it last year, we did it last month. But these things take time. And one of the things that people have to have is patience as we, this is a journey as an organization. I mean, it's often harder. So um, so I'd like to invite people to think about the elements of emotional intelligence, but first spend the most time on self and the self-awareness pieces. And even with aware self-awareness, the way I often will describe that is just sort of um, mindful awareness and think about it in context because it's the context that influences and uh, helps us develop the awareness. So the context of what happens in your family is different from the context that happens, you know, when you're driving your car or in the supermarket, what's the context? And uh, so if you, I, I invite people to think about three concentric circles with yourself in that middle circle, the center circle, and then the next circle out being others, and then the final circle being your surroundings or your ecosystem. So as you develop your awareness, as you, you build that muscle and capacity for mindfulness and self-compassion, you carry that through each of those levels of awareness. You don't develop it and leave it you know, drop it there. You just, you bring it through each and every one. And that's part of the inner work that as we bring it with us, as we embody it and remember that, yeah, oh, it's not just when I'm at home on my cushion or I'm walking through the woods. It's when I'm in that office meeting and my boss has said for the second time that I can't do this project that I really want to do. Or it's, you know, I'm in my office and once again, my colleagues have decided to do something social and they haven't invited me. Or gosh, this is the second year in a row I haven't gotten the budget request that I've asked for. It's in all of that. And it's also in times where we need to speak up or we need to add something. So there's a lot of work in that first piece. And then you bring that to all the other pieces. And what I'm curious about is when I think about self-awareness, and it's just me and myself, we're good. Okay, now we move out the context and we move out to others and that's where some problems start. And then we get into the ecosystem and it's, okay, suddenly I'm aware of myself in a toxic ecosystem. Okay, how does that help me? What, why is understanding that yeah. context? How's that gonna help me now? That's a great question. And I love the question because how we do, there's a book by Dove Seidman called How. And I think the subtitle is something like how, why how we do anything means everything. And uh, this matters because if I'm sitting in a meeting, for example, that is crazy toxic. People in the room don't get along, they're whatever. Are we adding fuel to the fire or are we helping to bring about clarity and understanding and solution to the room. Like what is the nature and quality of our presence? When we know what our state is, what the narratives are, 
that when they're, you know, running around in our minds, you know, whether our chests are tight <laughs> or our shoulders are tight, when we know that information, it gives us a great opportunity to take a purposeful pause and choose. How am I going to show up next? What am I going to say? What am I going to not say? Because that sometimes can be equally as important as what I'm going to say. What am I going to do? What am I not going to do? And when you do that, you can start to add, you can start to influence that environment in a very different way. There's this um, cart, this illustration I saw where there are a whole bunch of, you know, like angry people. And there's one person in the middle and they're just happy. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you see over the frames of the picture that it starts to be contagious. And what I will say is that oftentimes when you're in a meeting and you're not adding to the fury uh, by, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're silent and withdrawn. It means that you choose skillfully how to be a productive participant that models the behavior we want to see. And let me tell you, I have no illusions that it's easy. You know, people who have worked with me before have heard me say this tons of times. This work is simple, but not easy. It's simple to get it. Oh, yeah, I get it. But when you actually have to do it, you're, you're not always going to be surrounded by people who are supportive and right there with you because we all are where we are. And that's why that self-awareness, self-compassion, resilience piece is so important because we have to stay the course and then others join us. One of the things I learned in reading up about Lucentia is that you offer trainings on becoming aware of unconscious bias in the workplace. And I wanted to hear more about that and to begin the science that shows that we all have unconscious bias and how when you work with people in an organization, you help them appreciate that in a non-judgmental way. Like I don't have to be judgmental about myself because this is human. Right. That's one of the first places I, ha I start in my trainings because um, the, the state of our world, let alone our country or our individual communities, we're very tender right now. And people are feeling very vulnerable and very raw. And many people are feeling judged around what their particular population and society may have done or may not have done to others. But the reality is, is that there is some neurology, there's some neuroscience, there's some biology around why we do what we do, how we um, perceive other people, uh, and why why we do it in the way that we do. And so one of the things that I often, well, there's a couple of things I borrow from, but I, I use the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, Regina Polly, and even a modified video-ish of um, David Eagleman's work. And when you start to look at how we, we separate people um, who we feel are not like us, and then we, we attract and um, bring in people who we feel are like us and how that creates breaking or bridging the othering and belonging institute by John A. Powell is some work that I bring in as well. Um, when we can start to see like, oh, well, we had to do that eons ago because somebody from another community, a tribal community, that could have meant life or death. Or me walking alone in, in the world could have meant death. And so we naturally have used these practices to protect ourselves, to, you know, make sure our species survives. And then as our brains evolved, we started to have more executive functioning and processing capability. But at the same time, the parts of our brain that scan for threat uh, are still scanning for threat, even though those threat threats may look a little different. Maybe they're not saber-toothed tigers anymore, but there's something. And so when we can start to get to a place where we're like, oh, we, we all have it, the next layer of context is to introduce not only your life experience, it then informs on top of that, and your traumas, which can be individual, generational, and you know, collective. We know this from you know Resma's work and my grandmother's hands, and so that we know all of this sits in the body, and so that naturally influences how we perceive things. And I have this piece of uh, work I do that I talk about paradox prediction and perception and what the brain is doing and how it's pulling from the narrow data set that's called your life, right? That's, that's what the brain can pull from. It's only what our experience has been. So if our experience with a particular person or group of people has not been pleasant or it's been based in fear or 
has had a, a traumatic event, then that's the way we perceive that unless we disrupt the narrative to to be able to be in um, engagement and relationship in a healthier way. But we have to process the trauma. We have to heal the trauma before we can do that. You just can't move right into it. And so when you talk about that as the baseline for people and everybody can experience like, yeah, I have had trauma. I, I can think of some and there, there's some you know collective traumas that we're not even aware that we are carrying and that we enable and that we continue to perpetuate. And so when you open up the first part, you start to be aware of the other pieces. So that's where we start. And then you can start to bring in the concepts of, of what is unconscious bias. How is that even possible? That, that I would, you know, the one thing I often hear in my work, I would never say that. I don't even think that. I would never do that. And, and I give a lot of, there's a really wonderful, uh, some wonderful work that's been done by Professor uh, Sue, Daryl Wing Sue at uh, Teachers College at Columbia University around microaggressions. And I love the examples that, that he, he and his team give. And the example that helped me pulling from that work was when I was little, there are wonderful cartoons on TV that all of all of us loved. And one of my favorite ones was the Jetsons, this futuristic, you know, thing and the flying saucers and robots that worked. And it was a, it was a great cartoon. All my friends watched it. We all watched it. We couldn't wait for it to come on TV. And, you know, I grew up with lots of different sort of cultural groups around me, Asian, American and Latinx and and different sort of religious groups. And we all watched it. And when I tell people as this sort of um, example of a macro aggression, macro level, is that think about how all of us, white, black, and, you know, every, everybody from the BIPOC community, everybody from the white community was watching this cartoon. And when you see the cartoon, there is absolutely no one in that cartoon that looks like me. There's no person of color in the future. There's no person of color in any positions of power, working, managing a home, raising children. There's just, there's nothing. We're, we're not present. And so what that does is it allows this perception to kind of seep in, I said, like melted butter into the nooks and crannies. Nobody said, you know, people of color, you can't, there's no place for you. We, we just, it was implied in the absence. And so we have many things like that, where there's no representation. And this is why representation matters. And so when you start to think about it, and I pull out um, TV, I use, I use things, I also infuse a lot of humor, not to, so that we don't address what's present, but I really believe that humor also allows us to process and open doors. And so when I start to use things like the, the Jetsons, people start laughing, they're like, oh my gosh, that is absolutely right. And so when they began to think of who can run this company, who can do this? I mean, we've, we've come a long way since the Jetsons, but, you know, bear with me. <laughs> but but in, when you're starting to think of who can fill this position, the images of who would best suit those things weren't people who look like me. And they may not have been people that look like you either, because in those earlier days, too, there weren't even women that were holding those roles. Right. And so so we, we kind of traverse through that. And it's a journey so that people can incrementally get comfortable talking about bias, microaggressions, and then identity and intersectionality. Because the way I identify myself in the world may or may not coincide with how you identify me. And I'm, I'm actually experiencing something like that now. Because my name is Lopez Maldonado, most a lot of people think I'm Afro-Latina, but I'm actually Cape Verdean. And I just had a, I had a couple of people ask me to self-identify as Afro-Latina because I could be. It, and I was like, but, I, but I'm not. <laughs> you know, so I'm looking at how people, and it's interesting because people want to identify you a certain way. And when you don't fit that identity, there are some gaps there. And this is, you know, to me, that's a comical, you know, example, but this happens all the time. People want, you know, identify you as one way, you identify yourself as another way, or maybe you, you do overlap. But then when we intersect in our ecosystems, our systems and structures, which could be the world of work or what have you, 
Um, all of us are coming together now that we've gone through our bias. We look at the biology, we look at the biases, we look at microaggressions, we're looking at identity. Now we're intersecting. How in the midst of all of that do we, do we then create psychologically safe workspaces for everybody? And that's part of the journey. That's you have to go through all of those things in order for us to be intentional about that and, you know, making sure that we are practicing intercultural competence and all the things that come along with it. Well, let's talk for a moment about psychological safety, because that is such an important idea. It's now clear that if you want to have exceptional teamwork, the people on the team need to feel psychologically safe for that to happen. What do you think are the biggest drivers, creators of psychological safety? Well, you know, we already know from Google's Aristotle project that when we look at psychological safety, one of the core uh, underpinnings of that, in order to have that, you also have empathy, uh, compassion. Uh, They say empathy. I always say compassion because I think uh, compassion is empathy in action. But I also know we can, there are different types of empathy uh, that correspond to the word compassion. So I don't want people to get tripped up on what is it empathy, is it compassion? It's empathy with action to it. (laughs) And... um, and so I think that is definitely one of them, because when people know that you care, I, I don't remember who said this, quite frankly. I know I learned it um, when I was co-teaching with Scott Krenz, who is a co-founder of 1440, but says that people, I know he was quoting somebody, I just can't remember who, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And and I believe that to be true. So, you, so in, to have psychological safety, there has to be that component. There also has to be um, a felt sense, not a spoken word, or but a felt sense of feeling heard, valued, and seen, and that you understand that my experience as you know um, a white male is different from yours, or my experience as an Asian woman or a Latinx um, woman or somebody from the LGBTQ plus community, or me as an African American woman. Um, that they're all going to be different. I'm going to lend different perspectives. And and can we have the grace to allow those perspectives in and to be valued completely? You know, I, I can think of some time, some examples in my own work life. Where I remember um, working with a team to create a new, to design a new product offering for the public. And this team had worked so hard and it was such a worthy, wonderful concept and the content was good, but when they rendered the final product, every single person in the product was a middle-aged to uh, senior white male, and the only two women in it were women crying. There were no young people, there were no people of color, there were no empowered women, and I I noticed it right away, and they were so proud at what they Produced. Now, the topic and the content was great, but the way they translated it into in imagery what is what I found problematic, and they didn't see it at all. And so sometimes we're sort of caught saying, well, how do I speak to that without creating, um, you know, without hurting feelings in the room? And sometimes what happens when you point something out like that, instead of listening to the words that you're saying about, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we add whatever people... Uh, feel like they're being judged. They feel like there's an underlying message. You're racist, you're sexist, you're whatever. And so they're internalizing and they're they're feeling something is being reflected back to them that makes them very uncomfortable because they don't believe it to be true about themselves. And what I say, that's what makes unconscious bias so hard for people to process is that consciously we would never think, feel, act, you know, that way. We're like, that's just not even what I would do. And of course, it's the whole nature of it being unconscious. And so when we have to have a little bit of grace to let people uh, make those statements and, you know, learn as we go in the room, people have to feel like it's okay to make a mistake and that people still have their backs. And you won't, if you don't have that and empathy and that compassion um, and uh, that feeling heard, valued and seen, and that part is around that intercultural competence piece. If you don't have minimally those three things, you will never be able to create any kind of meaningful or deeply rooted, sustaining psychological safety. 
and, be, and there has to be accountability too. So if somebody is not, um, is violating sort of the, the norm or the agreements around psychological safety, we have to be empowered and whoever the ultimate leader of that particular team or group is, they have to be modeling it and they also have to hold people accountable because there's nothing worse than saying this is what we stand for, but nobody's held accountable to stay in alignment with that standard. Mm-hmm. Michelle, I wanted to ask you about something that I've been pondering ever since I started uh, reading up about you, which is your favorite saying is something that is repeated in, in different articles and stories about you and that your favorite saying is what happens to one of us happens to all of us. And I wanted to talk about this. First of all, it's just such a powerful statement. What happens to one of us happens to all of us. And what I realized is that philosophically, I get it and I say, that's true. I mean, we're all part of the web. What happens, you know, a butterfly's wing (laughs) happens to all of us. Like, I appreciate it at that level. But I also know in my own experience, I don't necessarily feel things that way. This is the hard part of bringing this up. Like, I don't feel that. Like, what happens to someone in my family feels a lot different to me than what happens to someone that I don't know at all, that I've never met, or somebody who lives three quarters of the way around the world. I don't feel it in the same way. Mm -hmm. So how do we take that favorite saying and bring it into our emotional and lived experience, not just at a kind of philosophical level? Mm. Thank you for asking that question. Because the first thing that often happens is exactly what you said, but I don't, I don't feel the same with somebody over here as I do over with someone over here. And what happens to one of us happens to all of us doesn't mean we're going to feel the same level of intensity. What it means is how do we get ourselves to care? It's not going to be the same intensity of emotion. But how do we notice that something is happening that is an injustice or is inhumane or is a humanitarian crisis? How do we get ourselves to care? And caring matters because think about the things that have happened just in the U.S. alone. So one of the examples I give, like why would we want to care? Sometimes in the U.S., because of our, the way our systems and structures are, are the way they are, there can be a crisis happening that begins in one of the BIPOC communities that people don't pay much attention to. They either sort of blame the community as it being their fault or, well, that's the way they are or whatever, until it starts to spill out beyond that community and starts to ripple into more affluent communities uh, you know, and we, and then it becomes a national crisis. Now, if you don't believe me, think about the crack epidemic in the 80s. It was not considered a problem when it was contained to the black community. When it spilled out, it was all of a sudden a national crisis. And now we move forward and we've got a whole bunch of um, national attention on people addicted to drugs and narcotics that are prescription and others. But all of this, when we start to to, um, not care when the initial signs start to appear, it means we allow it to kind of grow on its own, almost like in a peachy dish when mold starts to, to grow. If we don't care when the initial signs start to appear, what happens is we lay the the groundwork for it to continue to grow, to spread. And so the question that is asked through that statement is, how and what do I care about? And what is what capacity or ability do I have to use my voice or my resources to bring attention to it, to help mitigate it? Now, when I say this, people automatically have, you know, often have this reaction in their body, like, oh, that would exhaust me. There's so much to fix in the world. And we're certainly not saying that because some of us really love to tackle problem or situation A 
and we're really skilled and have the resources to do it. Other of us like problem B, C, D, and you know, whatever. So find the areas where you are best suited and bring your care and attention and resources to it. And when you feel like you're not the best person, think about who you might know, who might be, and bring it to their attention to say, hey, did you, did you hear about this? I know you're really interested in this, and I thought um, this, this example of something I heard might be really something that you might want to take a look at. And so the more we can kind of stitch together the fabric, we start to see that um, what happens to one of us happens to all of us becomes an individual responsibility of each of us to be a caretaker of one another and our community and our nation and our world in a way that gets us out of just thinking about ourselves or the ones we love. Okay, let me keep going a little bit in this hard, crunchy territory, Mm -hmm. which is I like the fact that you're saying what happens to one of us happens to all of us doesn't mean that I'm going to have the same emotional response. So that's a good clarification. And it's about caring. But let's say someone says, look, truth be told, I don't really care that much about this thing. Like I want to because I want to be a good person and I know we're connected and I want to. But care is like a feeling. You have to feel it. And I don't feel it, but I want to. What would you say to somebody who maybe who knows what it is that they hear about happening and they don't find that caring response emerging inside of them? Well, I think there are, I mean, there's so many ways to answer that. Answer that but the two in particular I will sort of offer is that uh, the first is maybe it's not your thing to address. That's the somebody else's thing to address. And the, and the other is maybe there is an opportunity to get involved and see, you know, there have been things that I've done over time where I have just, I never had an interest in it. And then something happened where it brought me into it. Uh, or I chose to participate and I'm like, holy cow, I never knew that. That was really cool. Or that was that, that I'd like to learn more of that, you know, and, and um, you know, like for me, I'll give you an example. I, I'm really there are two things in particular, you know, hunger and affordable housing that really I think are important. But uh, when I was younger, I was kind of like, yeah, no, that's really important. Everybody should have something. I mean, I, I, I put no action behind it. And then um, I started volunteering um, with a local community organization and distributing food during Ramadan. And, and then it became later you know, outside of Ramadan. And, uh, and that's not, you know, that's in the Muslim religion. I'm not Muslim, but it was food for everybody, you know? And I thought, this is a great example of how you serve. It's like, what can you do and what, what action can you take? So I wasn't interested in participating in a food bank or a food distribution, but I did care about people eating, (laughs) you know? And so, so the one thing I, I say to people is, if, you, if this is not what's calling you, it doesn't make you an insensitive or, you know, unkind person. Maybe that's not where your, your thing is, where you, your sources, your resources and your skill and your passion lie. But again, you might be able to tell somebody else about it. So finding out what is it that you do care about that goes beyond just um, what makes you comfortable. Now, here's the other thing. After I say all of that, I still believe that if you are a a, a self-aware, compassionate, kind person showing up in the world every day to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, there is a powerful ripple effect in that. You may say, I just want to be a good whatever. And if you are really good at that and you integrate all those other pieces, I, I, I wanna say I acknowledge that that's also true. That is also true that you can do all those things and your ripple effect can impact many lives that may inspire and and open up a space for people to do the work that you're not interested in. So I, I feel like it's not a it's not a straight black and white answer that there are so many ways. But even in that, that is a one way that what happens to to one of us happens to all of us, because if you show up like a jerk like that's going to affect the people around you as well, you know, so, so. Very helpful. Thank you. Now, I know one of the inspirations you received 
what you call a compassion project, one of your compassion projects, was to create something called a bridge to better. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about what that compassion project is, a bridge to better. Yeah. So yes, um, in my company, Lucencia, you know, I have to, I, I love the work that I do. It is what sort of keeps the lights on in the house and food on the table. So, but there are so many things that I, I want to gift to our communities and so many things I want to do. So we decided that we were going to have compassion projects. And I particularly use that instead of passion projects because I want people to start getting comfortable seeing compassion as a superpower, as a, a normal everyday thing that we need to infuse in all that we do. So um, this Bridge to Better was our second compassion project and, and it didn't start out to be that way at all. Um, it was um, when we were experiencing the nation, but our family in particular, my husband, we have one child, a 17 year old son, it was 16 at the time, when uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery and um, George Floyd were murdered. And our nation was just, I mean, we all know what was happening in our nation and the families of the people and the friends of the people that were murdered. And I'm sitting here, I was sitting there with my husband looking at my son, who is an Afro-Latino young man who is tall, he's 6'3". And, and I kept, and I've, I've had this experience all my life watching my father's interaction with police and other people. And, and, and there's this part of me as a, a mother of a black child that is scared. And, but I didn't, I never want to live and operate from a base of fear. And I didn't want my son to, and neither did my husband. So my husband and I said, we have to do something. As a family, we have to do something because most importantly, we have to show our son that no matter what things look like, there's always something we can do. And, and we have to be open about what that something is because if we say, I can't fix that, that's beyond me, that's too big, then we won't even take the little steps. And we wanted to show our son that even the little steps matter. So let's do something. So we decided, I don't remember how we got to, it's like we just decided we were gonna write an open letter to humanity. And the letter includes pieces from my son, pieces from my husband and pieces from me. And then we finished the letter and it was like cathartic. It was like, there was you know a couple of iterations of it and there's a lot of emotion around it. And then we just wanted to share it. But after we read it, we're like, you know, people are going to look at this and say, okay, I, I totally feel that, now what? And we struggled because we didn't want people thinking or encouraging this sort of go to somebody else for these answers. You need to do your own work to educate yourself about our history, what's happening in our country, and then be in dialogue or be in dialogue on parallel tracks. But what we decided was we called it uh, not enough, but a good place to start. And we decided to create create a resource guide to go with the open letter that was broken into four quadrants: self, family, community, world of work, or uh, I think call it, I call it something else besides world of work. And, Organization. Or thank you. And um, and we started, you know, weaving in sort of the contemplative pieces. So each of those pieces, you had reflections and questions to to explore for yourself, with your family, with your children, with your partners, uh, and then your co-workers and all those, and and lots of resources. So you can imagine everything. So it was like one-stop shopping, like here, this is not enough, but it's a good place to start your journey, your your exploration, your inquiries uh, to figure out how do you want to show up in this moment that our nation's at an inflection point to choose and be different. And so, and then we just put it on the web. We just liked for people to have and be free. And it within days, it went around the world. And we found that school systems, boards of directors, companies, teams, government agencies were all using it to train their people and to, um, to guide their conversations and their process making. And, and so we felt really honored by it. And people asked us to do a couple of Webinars. So we did one webinar for each one, and my husband, and my son were involved, and it. it was just a family project, and and we just have kept it for free for everybody. And some people said, "Oh, there's so much work that went into it. Can I pay you?" So we put up a button for like five dollars, but like you can still get it for free, or if you feel so, you know, whatever. Um, so that's how it started. We just it was it was a 
a self-healing and a sort of self-empowering project for our family. And then we just wanted to share it with the world in case it was as helpful for them as it was for us. And how can people get a copy of Bridge to Better if they, they uh, want to yeah. They can go to abridgetobetter.com. It's abridge, the number two, better.com. Wonderful. And then at the end of this online resource, Abridge to Better, you write, what we do now matters. And I want to ask you a question uh, about this. And I'm going to read these bullets that what we do now matters. Silence is complicity. Inaction is complicity. Heart set matters. Mindset matters. Voting matters. Risk is not binary. And it was that last bullet, risk is not binary. I took a moment, I was like, I don't know if I know what uh, Michelle and her family mean by that. What does that mean? Risk is not binary. So anytime we are in a turbulent time, it doesn't have to be turbulent, but in this case it was, when we make a choice to stand out and stand up, it's a risk. But the risk isn't just, will I get hurt or is this good or is this bad? That's the binary thinking we all get find ourselves get getting trapped into from time to time. It's good, bad, up, down, black, white, no, yes. And what we were trying to offer is that risk has cascading, when you take risk, it's a cascading effect. It is not just, I took a risk, I participated, I said that thing, I'm done. So much comes out of that. And not only does it come out of it for you and your own personal growth and awareness, but in the seed that was planted through the expression of you in that moment. And so I always like to invite people to catch themselves when they find themselves in binary thinking and instead ask the question about yes and. So you can think of things like pros and cons, but there's something beyond pros and cons. There's, there's, there's always that other, those other things. And I just, I really, we really wanted people to think beyond the binary track. Taking a risk has a cascading effect. It's a very powerful statement. And you have now also personally taken a risk, and I think there will be a cascading effect from it, to actually run for public (laughs) office, a total political newcomer. And not only, you have now won the primary just a couple of days ago and are moving into a general election. Yep. Uh, This relates to the House of Delegates in Virginia. What made you decide to run for public office? Everything that we're talking about today. You know, there's so many of us that want to see this sort of level of being, this way of being in the political process. I mean, we can look at what's happening on Capitol Hill. We can look at what's happening across our nation. And so many people standing on either side of the divide. We need bridge builders. And we need bridge builders who who will be willing to take risk and extend hands and arms across political lines. And uh, we don't see enough of that. And, And I think that a lot of us are operating from a base of fear because things are changing. And we have to do things differently and that's scary for a lot of people. So we need people in the process who can hold that complexity. And, uh, you know, when I looked as, you know, the things that inspired to bridge to better, the things that happened on January 6th, the culmination of all those things that and the things that came before. Uh, I stopped asking the question, where are the leaders who are going to be courageous enough to stand in the gap? Because the last time I asked that question, the immediate whisper thought I heard was. Maybe you're one of those leaders. And so the next part of the journey began. And I hope to be one of those leaders. But even, I feel very confident going into the general election, but even if I don't win, what I do know is that how I campaign matters. And one of the things I want to do is to bring back some some level of compassion, 
but wisdom to the process. You know, it doesn't mean that you just have to be nice. You know, as you know, in, in all of this work, sometimes people confuse compassion with just being nice and not dealing with the hard problems. And that's not what we're talking about. We want to make sure we do all of that because the one thing that really bothered me in the 2016 election was that it was hard for parents to allow their children to watch the presidential debates. And we shouldn't have that kind of thing where parents don't feel comfortable even allowing their kids be a participant or witness to the political process. That's when I think we start to sort of break the fabric links. And I want to make sure that fabric is uh, mended and mended well. Well, you are one of those leaders. And if people want to support you in your campaign, Michelle, what do they do? Where do they go? Um, they could go to Michelle4VA, that's Michelle with two L's, the number four, the letter V like Victor, A like Apple, dot com. And everything is there. And I'd like to say, I want to call our conversation compassion as a superpower. And I think it's a, a superpower you have. Oh, and uh, thank you so much for embodying it and demonstrating it here and being such a terrific bridge builder. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.